control that with uh, outside means that are injected into the body in some way. Of course, your hand represents the ability to accomplish what the mind says, or whoever's controlling the mind tells it, or however this thing comes down. So it might be that it represents them taking control of your head and your hand, your thinking and what you accomplish. Now, whether it's literally in the forehead or literally in the hand might not matter because it's a form of control. So could it be implanted in the arm and still accomplish what they want in the head and the hand? Uh, I meant to look up and then I forgot uh, the seal of God because he talks about don't do anything until I seal my servants in their forehead. Well, Paul spoke of, and those are the scriptures I intended to look up, people who had already been sealed and they didn't have a mark in their forehead. They died having been sealed of God, and there have probably been people in the church over the years here in the end time who have that seal already. Uh, it's a matter of accomplishing it with the total of 144,000 before those things could be turned loose. So God's seal, in my view, based on those scriptures, is it's his Holy Spirit within our head, behind our forehead, that makes that sealing complete. And he has to have that with 144,000 before it is complete, but it's been going on for a period of time. So you don't suddenly see somebody reach a certain level of conversion and all of a sudden they got this mark in their head, that one's mine. Uh, it's by the fruits, it's by His Spirit working through us. So just taking that example, it could be that the beast would also have some form of identifying his and you can't buy or sell without it. Now, they may very well come down to the point that they put a chip in your hand or in your forehead. I, I wouldn't doubt that in the least. But I think we should at least consider the possibility that it might be something that they do that isn't precisely in those spots, but affects those two spots. Uh, that would... That concept at least broadens our thinking to the point that we might consider not doing some things that they throw at us because it just might be that it is symbolic and the form of control they might get through the injection could indeed affect your mind and your hand. The ability to buy and sell is part of it and Buying and selling has always been done with the mind and the hand. You decide to buy something, and then your hand pulls out the gitas to do it. So, uh, even this vaccine already is beginning to affect those areas. There are places that you cannot go now without being vaccinated. Uh, we've read of various places. Uh, so I think that's going to increase. 
And it may include very well your ability to go in a store and buy and sell. So is the vaccine then that mark? I think you need to consider that before you possibly go get it. I don't think anybody here is in danger of going and getting it. But, uh, you know, there are others, and, and we wonder just what form it will take. So uh, I thought I'd just plug that in as a thought. I don't know whether it's actual or not, but we need to consider all possibilities as this stuff keeps coming down on us. But what is this? <laughs> and let's be careful. All right, back into the Scriptures themselves. Uh, a couple of notes here since we started in Hosea. He does not uh, address Judah and Israel here at the beginning of the book of Hosea. But he mentions several kings that Hosea prophesied during their reign. One of those was Hezekiah. I think it's interesting to note that. I didn't the other day when I went through there, but I believe that Hezekiah and Herbert Armstrong were a direct type. And Herbert Armstrong's uh, end came in Isaiah 39 when his sons were sent back into Babylon and became powerless eunuchs in a spiritual sense or of doing a work at that point. And Hosea is directed primarily at Ephraim. It does include Israel. It does include, I think, Judah uh, from time to time through there. But most of the uh, direction is toward Ephraim. Now, as we see these things coming down here at the end, who is the major player in all of this stuff? Uh, as we get into these end times, and it's America. So God addresses Ephraim first here, because this is where it would start. And Hosea then is primarily an indictment against the tribe of Ephraim, not the rest of Israel. It does include it, but it is primarily at Ephraim, this nation that Hosea wrote. And from that standpoint, it's interesting that he prophesied during the days of Hezekiah as well as other kings, because I think Herbert Armstrong certainly represented uh, God's true Israel, the church, uh, not in a final way, a way that is just ahead of us, in a better way, let's say, because God says it will be better. But he still was there as a type. And he was right here in Ephraim, is where he was. Uh, so this is the center of things, and always has been, really, when you understand. So it only makes sense that he would start this Minor Prophet series with Ephraim, since that's where all of this is really beginning. Then we come to the book of Joel, which we addressed last week, and here... He doesn't say when Joel preached. Uh, he was contemporaneous with some of these minor prophets, yes. 
but his name was the Lord is God. Let's, for a moment, back to Hosea, where Hosea's name is Joshua, Savior, or Yahweh saves. And it is indictment against Ephraim, but at the end of the book of Hosea, it shows that salvation will come through our Redeemer, Jesus, Joshua, Emmanuel, as we will know him when he's here. So there is hope for this nation, but it's not during this period of time. It's after this is over when he sets his hand to save it. But he's going to set his hand to save a remnant of the church ahead of that. So Hosea was well named. Joel means the Lord is God. And this book, as we saw last week, takes in the day of the Lord and some very dramatic happenings that are just ahead of us. So what he's saying here is, all right, Ephraim, this is starting with you. And then he broadens it in Joel to take in everything that he's going to do through the day of the Lord. And he doesn't address it to uh, Israel or Judah at first. He just says, you old men and all inhabitants of the land. Most books are pretty specific when they start out. A message to so-and-so. This one is not that way because it is not only about Israel, though it does bring in Israel in chapter 2 and on. It isn't primarily there. It is a worldwide book. One that encompasses the whole day of the Lord, which comes down upon Israel and the Gentiles. So that's why he leaves it as he does and talks about worldwide famine, worldwide pestilence, uh, not just here or not just in the nations of Israel, but as a general statement here, famine and pestilence. And we see famine already coming in some countries, and it's about to get that way here. Uh, the price of chicken wings, for instance, since just before COVID hit, has gone up from $59 a crate to four times that, about $200 now for a box of chicken wings that would come into a restaurant. Um, the inflation is going to go parabolic. Uh, when you print trillions and trillions of dollars and there's more dollars chasing fewer goods, the price is going to go way up. So we're looking at that. I just read this morning that there are 60 con container ships going in circles out in the Pacific because they can't come in and land. And I think the mystery of the computer chips for automobiles may have been solved as to why this occurred. I'd been chalking it up to the elites simply controlling it to help bring this nation down, and I think that's involved. But I just learned that the Chinese have built some huge automobile plants and are planning on flooding the world with Chinese automobiles. Now, what better way to create a market for your automobiles than to shut down manufacturing of automobiles everywhere else? And they simply have the capacity to do that. 
by limiting the amount of chips that go out. Uh, Toyota was smart. They're the biggest producer of automobiles in the world. Uh, why did Ford, Chevy, and Chrysler fall behind? Toyota makes better machines and perhaps market them better around the world. But they have now run out of chips, and the supply of Toyotas is going to go way down, even as Ford and GMC have shut it down to just a trickle of vehicles because that's all the chips they got. One of the biggest industries in America, maybe home building or is bigger, but automobiles <laughs> are certainly a close second. Uh, where, do pe where does people's money go? Their house or their automobiles? If there's some left over on their credit card, maybe uh, the golf cart and the boat and the airplane, who knows? But it's primarily the house and then the car. And they basically shut down our automobile industry. So it sounds, it makes sense to me that they are building these factories now and plan to flood the world with Chinese automobiles. And I read also recently that this chip thing could go on for years. And it very well may. Well, there's not many years left, but, but projecting that far. It's a trade war. That's what it is. We'll sell our automobiles and you can't sell yours because you won't have any. So this is a worldwide thing, and that's what Joel says and goes into the day of the Lord and world war. And then the day of the Lord at the end where really dramatic things begin to happen. Then in chapter 2, of course, he talks about sounding the alarm in Israel because Israel, Zion, are his people that he'd chosen to set an example to the world, and all we've said essentially is a bad example. Uh, so uh, he warns us here, he gives us fair warning in chapter 2, which we went through last week, and then he shows that at the end of that chapter that he is going to turn it around and bless Israel again. But he uh, here he starts with the church, the remnant of the church, uh, repents first and is blessed first and does the work of God at the end, warning the world about God through the two witnesses and the work of the people with them. So he's good. he rained out his spirit doctrinally, I think, uh, gave us the former and latter rains the last 25 years. And then he talks about the remnant in the last verse of chapter 2. Uh, he will call a remnant. So we got down to chapter 2, and let's pick it up there, but I wanted to kind of fill in the overview of these books and where they're headed and why he put them in the order that he did. So he's talking about the time of the day of the Lord and so on, and he says in chapter 3, for behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. So he's moving forward when he's going to turn things around. <coughs> I had another thought I wanted to include here and I, I forgot about it, but the names of these prophets are interesting. 
uh, Hosea referring to Christ as the ultimate Savior. And then Joel means uh, the Lord is God. And this book is about the trials and troubles here at the end in the day of the Lord to show that the Lord is indeed God. Now, do you think God just happened to look around one day and say, I need a prophet, I need one named Hosea, or I need one named Joel. Uh, So, oh, there's a guy down there, his name fits, let's use him. I don't think it works that way. God probably chose these guys from from birth or when they were very small and began to work with them, even though they may have only been herdsmen or nothing important, it didn't matter. The apostles weren't either, were they? Fishermen, tax collectors, they weren't the high and mighty of the world. But God, I'm sure, chose them a long time before Christ walked down along the beach and said, come on and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Uh, God's plan starts way back and comes forward, and he's controlling and working with things long before we might even begin to grasp what he's doing. And I like that thought, because I like to think that the God of the universe has a plan, has a purpose, and has been working everything out in order exactly the way he wanted to all along. You don't take him by surprise. He knows what Satan's going to do, He knows what his demons are going to do. He knows pretty much what we're going to do. Because he reads our hearts and our minds. And he knows us. Then he expects us to do our part to live up to the expectation he put in us when he called us. He didn't call us just out of the blue. He looked you over for a while. (laughs) I don't know how long a while, but a while. And then decided to give you a plain truth or to talk to somebody or however he did it and open your mind and show you. So you're not an afterthought. And don't think for a moment that any of us were an accident. Because we're not. God plans ahead. And I'm sure, just looking at the names all the way through here, and actually all through the Bible, that it all fit. And if somebody didn't have the name that he wanted them to have, he changed it. Take the example of the Apostle Paul. Now, he was not what God would have wanted. His name was Saul, like King Saul. And he wasn't a very good person in a lot of respects. Now, he may have been, in many respects, a fine individual, but he was going a totally wrong direction following his name. And then God said, well, I've been watching you all along, and in spite of everything you've done, I want you to be an apostle, so I'm going to change your name to fit the job. Just like he changed Jacob's name. And called him Israel. So don't think anything is not without forethought. 
Uh, we'll get to the book of Amos. I'll go ahead and include that here. It's next. His name meant burden. And Amos starts out is a real burden, a heaviness. Uh, the famines and so on that Joel mentions at the beginning of the book of Joel were not enough. Just as on this nation, famine and pestilence will not be enough. God then is going to add the military and warfare and the sword on top of that. And this plays out that way that he talks about famine and pestilence at the beginning of Joel when all these things are just getting going and in Hosea upon us. And then he adds an even heavier burden in the book of Amos. We'll get to that before the day's over, part of it at least. But in this context, I wanted to add another name. A Savior, uh, then an affirmation who God is, and then another burden that God is going to lay on Israel and the world. So back to chapter 3 of Joel. Let's finish it up. He's talking about the time when he's going to turn around the captivity and offer blessing again instead of cursing. I will also gather all nations. So there's coming a time when he is going to begin to bless Israel, and at that time he's also going to call the nations together. Because he says out in several of the prophecies that he is going to use other nations to punish Israel. And then he tells them that as a result of what they have done, he's going to punish them. So he uses his way and his instruments all the way through. He does not tell those nations to go punish Israel. They take it upon themselves to invade us and destroy us. And because of their attitude and what they're doing, the destructive mode, they are bringing a penalty upon themselves at the same time they're doing his work in destroying us. Just as he uses Satan. God wanted Job to learn some things. So he sent Satan to do the dirty work. But Satan will have to pay for being willing to do dirty work, if you will. So he's going to gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Jehoshaphat was a valley near Jerusalem. So it's going to be in this area near Jerusalem that he, he gathers them together. He is going to rule from Zion from the original Jerusalem, so he will call them to him for an account. And will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So he says, I'm going to bring them together and lay this on them. Plead with them, maybe for an instant repentance like Nineveh did. Uh, but at the same time, he knows they will not repent. 
So he's preparing to give them their comeuppance. He goes on to explain what they've done. He's going to let them know why they're being punished before he lays it on them. They have cast lots for my people, auction. Uh, we've had slave auctions in this country a few hundred years ago. So that's the way it is done. And they've given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. There are Gentile nations heavily involved right now in pedophilia and selling sex slaves. America's involved, but it's coming from a lot of places as well. And some of them are buying American kids. So this is something that, again, is a current event going on right now before our very eyes. Tens of thousands of American children are put into sex slavery every year. Just disappear. Yes, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon and all the coasts of Palestine? You don't know any, you're not following me. You know nothing about me. Will you render me a recompense? And if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? Will you offer to pay me, buy me off so I won't punish you? Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried it into your temples, my goodly, pleasant things. Now you remember I may have mentioned in passing a few weeks ago that when it says in Daniel that they will set up the abomination in the temple on the altar of God, that they will then control Jerusalem and the temple throughout the rest of this age. Uh, God is going to show the treasures. God is going to give his remnant people those treasures to put in the temple and in Jerusalem. And then, when that 70 weeks of building that is over, they come in and take over, and the church of God has to flee to Zion. So, I've heard many, many things by the man that I believe is going to be used to show these treasures. He's all worried about the world coming in and getting them. And, though he doesn't know it, with good reason, because they are. They will take them over. And it mentions it right here again, that those Gentile nations who destroy this country will take over the temple treasures, the silver and the gold that in Haggai God says is mine. It's his, but he lets them have it for a while. Now that's not without precedence. You know, even the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant for a while. So these things have happened in the past and God allows it for his purposes. And he's going to say, you've not only sold my children into slavery, but you've also taken my sacred things and put them in your pagan temples worshiping the devil. Now that's a pretty strong offense. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold to the Grecians. 
that you might remove them far from their border. Now, he tells us in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and all through the prophecies that he's going to do this, but then he indicts them for having done it. Now, it hasn't been done yet. Currently, they're taking a few tens of thousands of our children a year and selling them for sex slaves. They're also taking millions of our babies every year and selling them as parts for manufacturing various things all over the world. Our aborted babies go to China, they go to Japan, they go to Germany, they go to Italy, wherever somebody wants to use baby parts in whatever it is they're making. So in one sense, it's already in effect. But it's going to get worse to the point a third of us die of famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and a third get taken into captivity, not just a few million a year of children and babies, but the whole population. That's what it's going to expand to. But it's already happening. Behold, I will raise them out of the place where you have sold them and will return your recompense upon your own head. So they've used money to buy us, and God is going to hold them accountable for that. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Eternal has spoken it. Now, we have been involved in slavery before, you know, and are still being having our feet held to the fire because of it. Uh, so, this is history, and I don't know really how it applies in prophecy, because we're going to be taken into captivity, and then he mentions this, is this something that happens even before the millennium? I, I don't know where that fits, if that be the case, because we will have been destroyed and will be coming looking for Zion as a nation. Now, the church is coming ahead of the northern army seeking Zion, according to Jeremiah 50, but then the nation, the 10%, a little less, that is left at the end of the Holocaust will become seeking Zion as the millennium begins. So I don't know how that fits in terms of Israel having this kind of power. I don't think it would be during the millennium. Uh, it's not going to be slavery then. There will be peace everywhere. So I don't know quite what to do with what this is saying at this point. He says, Proclaim you this among the Gentiles, prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. God is getting ready to fight them. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. So here we have the valley of Jehoshaphat and the destruction of these nations 
as Christ calls them together to do so. This will be after, apparently, they have sold us into slavery and we have gone down as a nation. Because it's, it's in the day of the Lord uh, framework of time. Assemble yourselves and come, all you heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Uh, thither cause your mighty ones to come down, O Eternal. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put you in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow. For their wickedness is great. The whole world is overflowing with violence and wickedness and captivity and war. And God says, all right, now's the time. You're going to answer for that. So don't beat your plowshares into, I mean, your spears into plowshares. Do just the opposite because you're going to be in a battle. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Or, as my margin says, the valley of threshing. <laughs> You're going to thresh them. For the day of the eternal is near in the valley of uh, threshing. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, so it gives you a sense of time of when this is happening. Is right here at the very end. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now, what does he say in Haggai to Zerubbabel? Early in the book, he says, In a little while I'll shake the earth and the nations. And right at the end, he doesn't say a little while. He says, I'm going to do it. So we get the temple built. And then the closing of Haggai is what happens after that. So this is speaking of that time when he darkens the sun and moon, and does that shaking. The Eternal also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Now, he says he's in Zechariah he's going to come and dwell with us. And that's where he will invoke this destruction, is in the valley of Jehoshaphat, very near Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth shall shake, <coughs> but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So he is going to protect those who will turn to him. It's not going to be very many. So shall you know that I am the eternal your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Didn't Joel say, the Lord is God, and here he affirms the name of Joel at the head of the book. I am the Lord your God, or as Joel means, the Lord is God. It says the same thing. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. So this last time that they take over Jerusalem is going to be the last time when they uh, make an abomination on the altar and take it over and take the silver and the gold, which he mentions at the beginning of this chapter. They're going to do that. But then 
we flee to Zion, he comes and dwells with us, and then he is going to start these dramatic happenings, probably from there, and then he's going to finish them after the first resurrection and after he returns uh, with his saints. So it starts and then it finishes there when the millennium actually begins, announced on the Day of Atonement. So, he's going to come and dwell with us in Zion. Then he's going to go back to his throne and come down uh, for the first resurrection. And no more will the, Israel, will the Gentiles reign there because he and the Father are coming down at the beginning of the millennium and they will be there forevermore. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk. But didn't he tell us there in Isaiah 55 to come and have wine and milk without money? mentions the same exact things right here, that he is going to provide for his remnant people. We'll not have to worry about what are we going to eat. Now, there may be a period of time here where we can't buy and sell, and it would behoove us maybe to have some food stocked up. But it won't be a long period of time because it won't be long until he draws his remnant and... He will take care of them. And all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. So he's going to take care of it. We've got our rivers drying up right here in this area right now. But he's going to turn it around in this microcosm of the millennium with his remnant people and bless them during that time and Isaiah 55 is referring precisely to that, because 54 is all about the gathering and coming of his church together. Egypt shall be a desolation, and that may be a type of the whole world, because Egypt represents sin in the world. And Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. For the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Now we're going to get to the book of Obadiah shortly, which is an indictment against uh, Edom. And what God is going to do because of the violence against his brother Jacob that he has never forgotten. And Edomites are very, very high in the financial world of today. Rothschilds and others in the central banking system and in Washington, there are Edomites scattered here and there and everywhere because we're going to see in the book of Obadiah that they would be in those places and that they will be part of our destruction and that they will laugh at us when they bring us down because Edom has wanting, been wanting to destroy Jacob, ever since those original two men. And they are going to get their chance, and they are going to do it. And then God is going to bring judgment on them. So he mentions it here at the end of the book of Joel, and then he devotes the whole book of Obadiah, plus some scriptures in Isaiah and other places about it. 
Now, shed innocent blood in their land, what does that mean? Now, they're going to shed our blood in our own land, and then when we're taken captive, a sword after us. So both places, but a lot of it will happen right here. But are we innocent? (laughs) We are being punished by God for our national sins. So in that sense, we are not innocent at all. But to an Edomite who hates Jacob, there is an innocence in Jacob that Edom should not be destroying us for. In other words, God has forgiven Jacob in the past. He made Israel his chosen people instead of Esau. But Esau, or Edom, has been against Jacob ever since. So what they do to us will not be because of our sin against them, if you will. We will have sinned against God, and he will use them as an instrument to destroy us. But like the other nations who are used against us, they are not doing it to us necessarily for what we've done to them. They're doing it because they want to. Now, to some degree, we're getting our comeuppance for certain because what we have done to other people. We have sinned against Libya and against Afghanistan and Iraq and probably Iran before it's done. And we have beat up on people and mistreated people. So to some degree, there's justification. But God is saying (coughs) that to one degree or another against Esau or Edom, we have been innocent. They have been the ones oppressing us through central banks for a long time now. It hasn't been us oppressing them, it's been them oppressing us. And then they'll give the final ignominy by helping to totally destroy us and kill us. So in one sense, we are innocent before what they do to us. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. So these Gentile nations, including Esau or Edom, will have punished us, but God is going to intervene and save a little less than 10% to go on into the millennium and go on then forever and ever. And Paul even says in Romans 11:26, all Israel shall be saved, even those that have died and been killed without having been saved because of the great white throne judgment. They'll get their chance then and go on forever. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, For the eternal dwells in Zion. They'll be drawn there, and that's where he will live, and that's where he will save them. So, this all ends good. It's that you and I and the rest of the world are facing some terrible things in between. They won't last long, but they're going to be awful. And they already are becoming that. People are dying some pretty nasty deaths from vaccines already. 
and babies are dying some awful deaths for being cut apart while they're still in the womb or as soon as they're born. Right now in America, happening every day across the land. Some terrible times. And God's recompense is going to come on us very shortly and is already starting because we're permitting this. What we're getting through that vaccine is a kill shot is what we're allowing and causing our children to be put through the fire. So we thoroughly deserve everything that's about to happen to us as a nation. Well, let's get on to the book of Amos then. Again, his name means burden. And this book starts out as a burden, and he addresses both Judah and Israel here, uh, the entirety of the twelve tribes of Israel. And as I said before, the famine doesn't bring us to repentance, so the sword comes as a result. We're already seeing some famine and pestilence, and we're here rumblings of a sword uh, from China and Russia and other places. So these are the words of Amos, burden, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which is near Jerusalem, or was, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Uh, there was a terrible earthquake uh, that is reported in history uh, at that time. <clears throat> and maybe it was part of God shaking things as a warning to Israel of that day. Just as we are having increasing earthquakes and volcanic activity, things that should be getting people's attention right now, and they're increasing pretty dramatically. And he said, the eternal will roar from Zion. Now, we just read that at the end of the book of Joel, that he will dwell in Jerusalem, and he will call them to Jehoshaphat, and he will roar out of Zion. And utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Everything around, Carmel was not far from Jerusalem either, but all around that area that God is going to protect, trouble will come. I don't know just how big that is, whether it includes just the park over here or the whole of the grand staircase. Uh, we shall see. But uh, he'll utter his voice from Jerusalem and the shepherds will mourn. We're already starting to see some of that as the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the horses are running out of food. BLM is destroying a lot of wild horses because they're starving to death right now across the West. So these things are already upon us. It's just simply a matter of how much worse they're going to get. We're in it. So then he pronounces some things that are going to happen. Thus says the Eternal, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. 
Now here he's emphasizing what he just told us, that he's going to punish the Gentiles at the Valley of Jehoshaphat for what they've done to Israel. And here at the beginning of Amos, he lays a burden on them for what they have done to Israel. So even though he addresses this book overall to Judah and Israel, at the beginning of it, he addresses what they have done to Judah and Israel. And then how he will deal with Judah and Israel himself. So the Arabs are involved. I'll send a fire to the house of Hatzael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon and him that holds the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity. And then three transgressions and four of Gaza. I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. So Edomites are at the top of the food chain today and they're going to take these people and sell them to Edom and Esau. They're going to buy us as slaves. Who has the money to do that? The central bankers, the elite, Edomites. So the Edomites are very much included here. And aren't they just licking their chops to bring vengeance on Jacob? Oh, you bet. We'll turn them into slaves. I'll give you so much for that one and so much for this one. And aren't they already buying us? Sending out paychecks to Americans all over the place and getting them tied in to Uncle Joe? instead of working. So we're already becoming slaves right here in our own country. Are any of them going to want to go back to work after they've been getting free money? I don't think so. And are they going to cut off the free money? I don't think so. Just keep printing trillions of dollars and getting Americans into total slavery through a vaccine and through a paycheck. And then through food, because of famine. They are going to create a lot of the famine, and we see the signs of that right now. So, he'll send a fire there. And I'll cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Eternal. Now these that he mentions here, we might not even be able to identify exactly who they are today. But he's mentioning some of the uh, historic enemies of Israel. So the enemies may be a little different today, but some of them will probably be the same peoples who have been against us thousands of years ago along with a bunch of others that join in. So how could he mention China or Russia or Iran here? As Amos wrote, because those were not the traditional 
enemies. They didn't exist as countries. But some of the peoples mentioned here may have been involved. So what we have to do is look around at the enemies of Israel then, look at the enemies of Israel today, and put together that he's not talking necessarily specific (coughs) peoples as much as he is (coughs) those who will be our enemies here at the end. And Edom is certainly a primary one. So I think the Arabs are going to be involved. Uh, He was mentioning some of them here because they were enemies then. And I think that, yeah, it is against them as well. But it will include others, it appears. Then he mentions Tyre uh, for three transgressions and for four. In other words, for many transgressions, three, four, or more, you could say. I will turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. Over to the elites, the rich. I will send a fire on the wall of Tyre, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Now, ancient Tyre was against Israel, and I think you can make a pretty good case that New York City is the modern Tyre. Uh, but do we have people in New York City who are our enemies today, enemies from within? High in government, high in finance, high in Wall Street. They have great influence, and Jeremiah even tells us that our leaders will shake hands and make deals and sell us out with the enemy. Is General Milley doing that today? Has Biden done it in Pelosi and you name them? Uh, Clintons. You can go down the list. They're all involved in what God said would happen. So this is more of that. Edom will not remember the brotherly covenant. Twin brother of Jacob and doing his best to kill all Jacobites. And it might include a modern New York City. Thus says the eternal, verse 11, three and four transgressions of Edom, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword, and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So God says that the original hate of Esau, addressed in Hebrews 12, is still around. It hasn't gone away yet. And Paul was using it as an example in the book of Hebrews because it was still around then. He was facing, the church was facing, in the early church, the wrath of Esau and Edom among some of those who said they were Jews and were not. And the Ashkenazi Jews, a lot of them, most of them probably, are Edomites who call themselves Jews. So, Zionism and modern Judaism is deeply involved in Esau and Edom. And they may not be uh, Jews at all. The book of Revelation mentions that. Not just an ancient prophecy, but the final one. 
those who say they are Jews and are not. Verse 12, But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Those were cities of Edom back in that day. Chapter, verse 13, Thus says the Eternal, For three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, says the Eternal. Now, I think you can make a pretty good case for Ammon and Moab being, uh, in great part, the Mormon church. Uh, Esau and Edom may be involved there as well, but remember Esau was a red man, and among the Mormons you see an awful lot of blondes and redheads. They're just everywhere. And they are known for incest, as were Lot's daughters. And that has apparently continued. And where are they located? Primarily in the original promised land before God expanded it. Utah, northern Arizona, and up into Idaho is where the majority of them are. So I have reasons, and if you go into Isaiah 15 and 16, it's talking there about the punishment against Ammon, and uh, then it mentions the people of God there and how that they are commanded to protect and take care of us as opposed to destroy us. Now, are they going to do what God says, or will they try to destroy God's people? Uh, the Mormon church is arguably one of the, if not the, richest corporations on earth. They have incredible wealth. Some of it is gold and silver they've mined here and found here. But they compete with their own tithe payers. They ask everybody to give 10% to the church. And those people who give that are running businesses. And the church is running businesses of the same kind in competition with people have to give them 10% of their income. Now, is that fair? <laughs> give me 10% of your income, that'll help me compete with you. No. They're crooked from the top down, and they are at the top very much part of masonry. And masonry is tied in with the elite of the world, and that's why the Mormons have been very involved in the CIA. A high, higher percentage than average of the CIA are Mormons than from other walks of life elsewhere. They are very much involved in this. So Ammon and Moab and Edom are all included and I think that there may be a certain amount of Edomites included in this area that may be Mormons as well. 
Not all, I'm sure. There are probably some Israelites involved there. And they don't, none of them like anybody who's a Gentile. They're, the Mormon church is very racist. Uh, you only have to talk to a Mormon a little while to find that out. But they don't publicly admit that. It isn't publicly acceptable to be racist. And they allow, let's say, black people, they'll allow them into the church. There are a few, not very many, but a few. And they will allow that, but if you talk to them privately, they realize they are only doing it to curry public sympathy and favor. But they don't expect them to be a part of, let's say, the kingdom of God. Because they consider some of those Gentile peoples to be less than human. That's their view behind the scenes. I've talked to enough of them over the years, and I was involved with the Mormons before we ever came here. My kids went to school with them in Idaho for some years. So we were around them up there. And in southeastern Idaho is more Mormon than Utah. Probably 90%. So I've been around it long enough to pick up on some of these things. Anyway, uh, they're going down too. And when you look at it, this being the promised land, right now, we can't go buy land where we believe the temple ought to be, or Jerusalem. We can't just go buy land there and do it. It's impossible. Uh, it's claimed by the U.S. government, BLM land, if you will. And you can't just go do something right now. So, what's got to happen in order for that to become a reality? These Mormons and their control has to go away somehow. Maybe he's talking about that right here. I don't know. But it does have to change in order for those things to be able to happen. Well, we're almost a quarter after the hour, and we finished the chapter there, so let's stop for today.